Hello, resilient listeners. This is Jen Chambers, your host. I wanted to remind everyone at the end of this episode, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, or share. It really helps the podcast and it doesn't hurt you except for just a little click. So thank you in advance. I really appreciate it. Today's subjects are both two activists. They are uh, activists in different arenas, but um, I think they're both really worth knowing about, and they're both activists from history. Our first activist is Julia Goodman Rutia. Julia Rutia came by her activism naturally. One might even call it hereditary. Her father, John Godman, was a wobbly, a member of the radical labor organization, quote unquote, the industrial workers of the world. And her mother, Ella, was a socialist. Her path hardly veered from the argumentative or what she thought was just, and she fought hard for the rights of workers and citizens. In one of her really famous photographs, she is posed with her, posed with her face cocked to one side, her chin on her hand. She's wearing a dark dress with a sharply pointed white collar and cuffs, and has a very thin smile. Her eyes are intense under dark, full eyebrows that barely arch. But what is remarkable about the photo is the incongruous either twine or hemp braided bracelet that's wrapped around her wrist three times. It contrasts with the soft, satiny nap of her dress, and it stands out in a way that another type of more traditional jewelry might not. The bracelet was made for her by Ray Becker, a wobbly activist whom she supported while he was imprisoned. Ray Becker was imprisoned for the role that he played in the Centralia Massacre, a riot where eight members of the Industrial Workers of the World defended their hall against a mob on Armistice Day 1919. Four American legionnaires and one wobbly were killed in a gunfight there. Their attorney, a man who had advised them of their right to use weapons when defending the hall, was among the imprisoned. Witnesses said the soldiers had attacked first, and the workers were acting in self-defense, and so Julia always thought— but the industrial workers of the world men were convinced of conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree. But second degree murder in the state of Washington at the time was unpremeditated murder. If they hadn't planned on murder or conspired to do so, it was hardly premeditated, according to the defense. The proceedings were bitter and plagued with anti-worker and anti-big logging interest sentiment, which was prevailing at the time. The trial was followed by wobblies throughout the region and came to the attention of Julia Rutia, who helped form the Free Ray Beckett Becker Committee. The others convicted of the crime were released in the mid-1930s, but Becker remained in prison until 1939. He was the last of these men to be paroled, despite all of Julia Rutia's hard work in his defense. Rutia was instrumental, though, in keeping records related to his trial, and over two document boxes, or 90 cubic feet, of, of these survive today. Julia Rutia was born in 1907 to John and Ella Godman in Eugene, Oregon. She lived and was homeschooled in logging camps and uh, briefly on a farm. According to Sandy Polishuk, the author of Sticking to the Union, an oral history of the life and times of Julia Rutia, 
Retier learned a great deal in her family home. It sounded like a lively environment. Socialists, traveling workers, and anarchists would be frequent guests at their dinner table. Her family would more often than not hide activists from the law and renegade pacifists. She was influenced by her mother's radical ideas on women's rights, too. Her mom was was very firmly on the side of believing that information on birth control, which was then illegal, was a female right. And her mother actually went door to door to promote the idea of birth control to women. It was pretty, pretty radical in the early 1900s. Julia would recall later her mother having received the contraceptive information through the mail from Margaret Sanger, who, of course, is the woman who was the leader of the movement for birth control in America and whose organizations would evolve into what is now Planned Parenthood. Ella would, her mother, would put the literature actually in a basket and she covered the literature with brown eggs. She brought it into the homes of the other women as she was delivering the eggs. Julia remembered hanging off her dress as she went and delivered all of this literature. Julia's first marriage was to William Bowen, but it was brief. She attended the University of Oregon, where she studied during 1925 and 1926. She married for the second time to Maurice Butch Bertram, and she had her only child, who was a boy, in 1928. They were living above a sawmill at the time, where her husband was employed, and the couple organized a ladies' auxiliary and a timber workers' union. Julia couldn't keep her hands out, even when she had just had a baby. In 1936, while she was involved in the Ray Becker case, she began writing, and she wrote most often for The Timber Worker, which was a union newspaper, in Becker's support. She wrote regularly for the newspaper, and she eventually became its editor until 1940. Her passion in working against oppression working against prejudice, and working against racism, and working for peace and solidarity among workers, followed her as she wrote for other union newspapers. She wrote for the Longshoremen's Newspaper and the Warehouseman's Union. She wrote for the Labor and Farm News Service, the Federated Press, until it closed in 1956. Now, interestingly, she had several pen names, Julia Godman, Julia Bertram, Julia Eaton, Kathleen Cronin, and Kathleen Rutia. And that way she could avoid censure because she was always kind of flitting around. In a labor strike in 1937, the author Stephen Steve Beta writes that Rutia, who was at that time was named Julia Bertram, complained to the Portland City Council about the employer goons who had injured the strikers. They had threatened to picket and they held the line with rolling pins and baseball bats for protection including Julia Bertram. In 1948, while she was working for the State Public Welfare Commission, she reported on the victims at the Vanport Flood. Vanport was the nation's largest wartime housing development, a city outside the Portland city limits that was founded by Henry J. Kaiser, who had contracts for warships but no place to house his workers. He bought land there in Vanport that was bordered on three sides by dikes and created a city with 9,942 apartment units, units, according to one of the former Vanport residences. This resident, Carolyn Bosnovich, said, Vanport was a melting pot, inhabited by lonely, overworked souls. It sprang from swampland, and as each unit was finished, people from different states and different cultures were jumbled together. 
I played with a Jewish girl from New York who lived in our building, and my best friends were Catholic girls from Minnesota. We moved here from Yonkala, a small town in the central part of Oregon, and I had never known any people who weren't white and Christian. The city named Van for Vancouver and Port for Portland, between which it resided, was populated by people from all over the country to work on the warships at the time. About 40% of the population was African American. It was heavily segregated as far as residents, but not in schools, and the area had an unprecedented level of racial progression due to the policies of the Housing Authority of Portland, which administrated Van Port. The spot was near the amusement park, now known as Jansen Beach. It's not amusement park anymore, but the area is. The park hosted popular big band music, including greats like Tommy Dorsey in its golden ballroom. Vanport was the first place where policemen and teachers were hired who were African-American or in Oregon. Now, the disaster of Vanport was something that very much concerned Julia Vertia after the city was decimated when a flood pushed over the dikes and gave the estimated 18,500 people only 35 minutes to escape. The destruction was particularly brutal among the percentage of the population that used the crowded public transportation system, which, according to some residents, was always packed virtually shoulder to shoulder. Fifteen people died. The article that Julia Vertia wrote about it, which advocated for, Af- for the African-Americans who were left homeless, decried the efforts that the city made to help the impoverished community. But it did help the event become a lightning rod for debate in the state. It also lost Routier her job at the state and outed her as the author of politically charged writing. After Julia got married to her next husband, Oscar Routier, in 1951, she moved to Astoria, Oregon, and worked with a different union, the Columbia River Fishermen's Protective Union. She was then subpoenaed to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1956 due to her interest in the Oregon Committee for Protection of the Foreign-Born. It turned out that the Federal Bureau of Investigation had been interested in and had Routier over surveillance since the 1940s. She was then denied membership in the Communist Party. When her husband Oscar died in 1962, Julia moved back to Portland and continued her activism. Julia had trouble paying her bills and reportedly attempted suicide over an unpaid phone bill that was too much for her to deal with. Her struggles continued with domestic violence, multiple abortions, and single motherhood. She joined anti-war protests and anti-nerve gas protests and continued her investigative reporting. She worked up until her last years and died living near her grandson in Anchorage, Alaska in 1991. When she was in her 80s, she self-published a book of her poetry. Stephanie Taylor, who found one of the spiral-bound and mimeographed books, writes that the 200 poems are terribly meaningful and poignant, and they create a through-line that connects her activism and her feminism. The first stanza of her poem, Long Log Country, goes, This is Long Log Country. I was born with sawdust in my veins, the silver sound of crosscuts in the stillness like a wound, troubled echo of the hunting horn. The last stanza of the poem brings in her experience. I can remember, too, where bullets sped, soft-nosed and deadly, in the summer dawn, and strikers in the clearing, doomed and dead. Her poem can be read as a eulogy for the union struggle, or as an analogy for war, both of which she fought against her whole life. The two stanzas taken alone could also read as grief for a way of life gone by. Just a brief break 
to read you guys a little bit of information about Buzz, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout is who I do my podcast through, and it's hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout, like me, to get their message out to the world. Today is a great day to start your own podcast, whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, you have a message you want to share with the world, or you just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy and inexpensive and fun way to expand your reach online. Let's create something great together. Listeners of this show get a $20 Amazon gift card sent after your second paid invoice to Buzzsprout by using the affiliate link in the show notes. Let's create something great together. The next person we're talking about is Letta Stetter Hollingworth, who lived from 1886 to 1939. Letta Stetter Hollingworth was an early pioneer in psychology who is best known for her contributions to the study of intelligence testing and giftedness, while some of her contemporaries believed that intelligence was largely the result of genetic inheritance. Hollingworth felt that education and environment played a more critical role. That quote is from Kendra Cherry at Very Well Mind, who was the first source that I have for this episode. Letta came from a background that was challenging. Her mother died giving birth to one of her siblings when she was three years old, and her father apparently abandoned the family to have them be raised by her maternal grandparents. He would about 10 years later come back and force the children to live with him and his new wife in what Letta would characterize as an abusive household. Her dad was apparently an alcoholic as well as being verbally abusive, and she found a lot of solace in school, something she was very good at. Letta left home as soon as she finished high school. She went to the University of Nebraska and received her teaching certificate and English literature degree there in 1806. She met the man who would be her husband, Harry Hollingworth, while at school, and she took a job as a teacher in Nebraska after she graduated. She actually became not only a teacher, but an assistant principal. Harry went to New York City to get his doctorate. He took it in psychology at Columbia University. Before too long, Letta went to marry Harry in New York City as soon as they had saved up enough money. When she tried to find a teaching job there, she was told that the New York school system would not hire females who were married. I guess it wasn't too surprising that she got kind of bored and frustrated. She was a pretty high-achieving woman. Multiple multiple sources say that the inactivity was difficult for her. But she was interested in women's issues, so she became active in that arena in helping women get the right to vote. At that time, she also helped her husband with his research on how caffeine affects the brain and motor function. For Coca-Cola, actually. She went back to school at Columbia herself to earn her master's in education and then received her PhD. Letta's doctoral dissertation studied the idea that women's mental and motor function were something that fluctuated with their menstrual cycle, according to womenshistory.org. This was the prevailing idea that when women were menstruating, they were basically unable to do pretty much anything. So Letta wanted to refute that 
In her study, she tested a group of women and men with several tasks over a three-month span. And she found that there weren't any qualitative differences with the women when they were having their menstrual cycle. She was also interested in her theory that women were not innately inferior to men in intelligence, which was another common idea that was held at the time. She thought that women didn't reach prominent positions in society because of the social roles that were thrust upon them. That makes sense. Women were tasked with the idea that they had to raise the children and clean the houses and then were also forced to not be educated. So then, of course, they couldn't achieve. Some of her research showed that women who had intellectual disabilities actually were more likely than men to be cared for. And by that, she meant overlooked and isolated in the home rather than sent to an institution or somewhere where they could be helped. Before she went back to school in New York, Letta worked part-time giving Binet intelligent tests at the clearinghouse for mental defectives. She did well there and continued working in a similar capacity at the Bellevue Hospital Center as the chief of the psychological lab. She would work there at least one day a week for many years. Now, Letta Hollingworth founded the Classification Clinic for Adolescents and the American Association of the Clinical Psychologist. She helped develop the ethical guidelines for clinical psychologists. During her work, she preferred working with children and gifted children at that, but she also promoted universal standards for training in clinical psychology and trained other clinical psychologists. She became the principal of the School of Exceptional Children at Bellevue. She went on to make her life's work, really, the study of gifted children and continued to test and observe high IQ individuals. She developed the first ever class on how to teach these gifted individuals, and she studied the nature versus nurture idea of intelligence in children. Lita taught at Columbia University until her death. She died from abdominal cancer at the early age of uh, 54, and she left two landmark books on her subjects, Gifted Children, published in 1926, and Children Above IQ 180 in 1942. Hers was a very interesting life, but she achieved a lot in spite of her upbringing. And her her uh, her methods were unorthodox, but she definitely is someone that I thought that I would have heard of by now who contributed to how women are not treated as infants today. Sometimes we have to start over Sometimes we have to fight back Sometimes it's all too much Of the 
Our stories are brilliant